Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Today, I am really excited to welcome a good friend of mine. Her name is Marnie Breaker. Marnie is a psychotherapist here in Southern California, which is where I'm located. She's a licensed marriage and family counselor, a certified sex addiction therapist, a certified clinical partners specialist, uh, and is a master's and licensed therapist here in California. She's also a founder and clinical director of the Center for Relational Healing. And what a great name, the Center for Relational Healing. Welcome, Marnie. Thank you so much, Rob. Glad to have you. We've been friends for a long time. We've worked together for a long time. And I know how much you know, uh, especially about partners issues. So maybe we could start there. Um, you know, one of the things I think I wanted you to think about was, what is it like for you, for you and for the partner, if you're working with a partner of a sex addict, you know, they've just found out, you know, that their spouse didn't just have an affair, didn't just uh, go to Vegas and get a lap dance. Not that those things aren't concerning, but you've just found out that uh, with the spouse that there's probably an extensive amount of acting out. And so... What is the state of a partner or a spouse or a wife or a husband who walks into your office understanding they've experienced that level of betrayal? Usually I see a tremendous amount of anger, um, shock, confusion. They don't know who to talk to. Uh, They don't know who the best therapist is. You know, often there's this desperate desire to be with the best person, you know, who's going to really help make my marriage work? Who's going to get my husband better? And so there's just, there's so much crisis. I guess if I were to narrow it down to what's the biggest thing I see, it's crisis in all areas of life. So how do we find treatment, issues around childcare, um, finances? Because as you know, oftentimes, you know, sex addiction treatment can be incredibly expensive and also health concerns around, you know, health risks, STDs, things like that. So just tremendous crisis. And sex addiction is expensive. I mean, if you are hiring sex workers, if you are paying to take people to dinners or buying hotel rooms or all of that takes its toll on a relationship too. Absolutely. I'm curious, um, you know, you said anger and I guess what come, I mean, I totally understand. I mean, you love someone, they've basically, you feel like they've ruined your life and now you have kids or family, you have relationship, you have a home, you have all this stuff going on as a couple who is the partner most angry at? Are they just angry at the person that has cheated on them, has been acting out? 
I think initially that's where I see the most anger directed. Later in the process, I will say that there tends to be anger um, often at other people that might have known, um, you know, friends that might have participated in some way or kind of helped to facilitate some of the acting out. Sometimes there's anger at the addict's family of origin for issues around, you know, abuse that might have occurred earlier on, you know, feeling, I'm thinking about a partner I was just talking to the other day who hates her husband's family now because she, she blames them for kind of creating the, the foundation of his addiction. So when you're a spouse of someone who is a sex addict, you come to understand that regardless of what the sexual acting out meant to them, that there's always early trauma and abuse that underlies the clients who have this level of problem with sex. And then the spouse, I guess, is stuck, you know, aren't they? I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of like, I hate him. He ruined my life with all these affairs and sex and all the stuff he did or porn, whatever. But on the other hand, I'm being told as a partner or a spouse, well, he has a problem. He had this terrible childhood. All these awful things happened to him. And this has been his way of coping. How does a partner deal? And I've seen this too, with this conflict of, I really love them. And if they are really hurting and there's something really wrong with them, then I do have empathy for their pain and even the fact that they ended up living in all this secrecy and hiding. But on the other hand, you've ruined my life. You slept with all these people. You brought someone into our home. You spent all our money. You know, there's all of that stuff. So how do do they come to terms with that? Or I guess maybe it's different for different people, but can you talk about that? Yeah, there's, um, there's, there's a lot of times there's that idea of how could I have chosen this person? I was the one who, who chose this, you know, my, my picker is off, there's something wrong with me. Um, And also feeling that the, that their husband's behavior reflects on them, or that other people are going to look at them and think that it was something that they failed to do or provide in the marriage or relationship. Um, As you said earlier, it's so different for every person, there are some universal things that we see. Um, you know, it's funny, the anger is one of those things. It's very rare that I've had a partner not feel tremendous anger. Um, the shock, the broken trust, the confusion and the crisis, all of that, as well as the identifying of like, um, of this chronic pattern of abuse that came with trying to protect the addiction, all of those things would be universal, as well as what you pointed out a few minutes ago about the that dialectic of, you know, being so angry and yeah, you blew up my life, you shattered everything, you've destroyed our family, but I'm being told that you have a disease and, you know, we said in sickness and in health and, you know, how can I leave? Mm-hmm. So it's really... It's a lot of stuckness. Um, like, where do I put this anger? If this person is troubled, then how can I be angry at them? But look what they did to me. Why wouldn't I be angry at them? But if I get angry at them, what if they go back and act out again? Right. What if I'm responsible for making them, you know, throwing them into the arms of another person just because I'm so angry? Maybe I shouldn't even let them know I'm angry is another part of that, right? Absolutely. And then, you know, what partner have we ever met that wants to continue to have sex in those early stages when they hear about what's, you know, the betrayal? So they want to sort of put a, um, a barrier between themselves and their partner in terms of intimacy and sexual contact. But then there's that whole thought of, wait, if I'm not intimate with him, he's going to go out there and he's going to find another way to get that. And so there's also that sort of pressure and fear, a lot of fear. That was one of the other things I don't think I mentioned that is pretty universal, I think, to most partners in, in those early stages. What what are partners afraid about? I think they're definitely afraid that they're gonna go that that they're gonna go back out and do it again. Uh-huh. Um, so a lot of fear of relapse. 
Um, and maybe also fear that they're never going to get over it themselves. How can I ever forgive? How can it ever be the same? How can mm. I ever trust again? I wanted to ask you, you know, I, I brought up anger for a reason because I, I often find that underneath there somewhere partners are awfully angry at themselves. And, uh, you know, it can vary from I should have seen this coming to how could I not know to, um, uh, why would I have put up with someone? I've seen him be distant or her being distant. I've seen them unavailable. I've seen, and I, yet I didn't really, you know, take an action sooner. It, it seems like the partners are just in a world of pain around kind of beating themselves up too. If you're married to or involved with a sex addict and they have been cheating on you for years and you didn't know about it, which I actually think is natural to not know about difficult things going on with someone close to you. Um, what a stuck place for them to be. They're angry. They're just angry and hurt. Absolutely. It's, um, I do think that they are very angry at the person that's hurt them and betrayed them, but you're right. I think that it varies from partner to partner in terms of what they're angry at within themselves. But yeah, there's so much anger. Why did I, you know, if they were suspicious at one point and confronted, um, their partner and, they believed what they what they were told. They might question themselves now, in, you know, after finding out about the the discovery and think, how could I ever believed him? How can I have trusted him? And a big thing is, how will I ever trust again? Not just him. What if I what if I do leave him? What if I leave him and I start over? How am I ever going to trust anybody? And how can I trust myself to ever make a a healthy decision? So tremendous, yeah, tremendous anger. You know, and then we also see, I'll, I'll add the idea of kind of that treatment-induced trauma. I see a lot of partners and even addicts come in with a lot of anger towards the profession and the mental health professionals who they might have gone to see prior to coming into my office for help. And maybe maybe they were with somebody who wasn't a specialist and sent them in the wrong direction, maybe exacerbated the problems with their um, in their relationship. And so a lot of anger, a lot of anger and, and justified, as you said. You know, that's a, a really interesting point that that we haven't talked about on the show before is, you know, there's a lot of common mis misperceptions about what sex addiction is and what it isn't and does it really exist and all of that stuff. Although we're getting closer to a diagnosis, I think we'll have one in the next 18 months or so. But how, aren't there people who just think, you know, this is just an excuse for bad behavior. I mean, he just, now that, you know, this is a bunch of BS, this addiction stuff. And the truth is he wanted to sleep with all these people or she wanted to have all these affairs and, and now they find a way to justify it. So they're all troubled. Isn't that nice for them? They got to sleep with all those people and they're, uh, and they're, and now they need lots of care, but I'm the one who is at the other end of all this. I'm the one who's been lied to. I'm the one who might've been exposed to a disease. I'm the one whose children might've seen porn online. Why are you so focused on helping him or that person? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that anger, absolutely. I think that partners often experience that after the initial sort of stabilization, like once the addict gets his treatment and he's sort of off the streets and, you know, it may be in a program and with a therapist, and then the partner finally gets to drop in herself and get some help. And then I think that's where a lot of that anger comes in. Like, oh my God, I found this out and I've been just drowning and it's been all about him. And, um, and yeah, I think that that's a really big issue that they have to grieve and struggle with. I have another question for you. What is it like uh, for you or what do you see maybe most often when a couple, a male, female couple, and let's just go with your example because you've been using wife a lot and husband a lot. Like, sounds like that's a lot of what you see, by the way. Yes. Yes. Do you think other couples are not as invested in coming in around this, like gay couples or unmarried couples or, or what do you think it is that makes married heterosexual couples more likely to want to jump in and look at sex addiction? 
That's a really interesting question. I mean, in my experience, I feel like it's the couples that come in. The couples that come in are the ones where where someone got caught. So it's not that I haven't seen uh, gay couples come into my practice or um, non-married couples. I actually do see non-married couples, you know, that live together, have been together for a while. I'm, I'm just not sure. I mean, some of the things that I've I've kind of heard through colleagues and in discussion and in listservs over the years about maybe why we don't see more gay couples coming in is because perhaps um, sex is looked at different culturally amongst the gay population. Maybe certain things are more normalized. There's a lot more um, open relationships and non-monogamy. So it's an interesting question. But I will say that, yeah, my experience for sure is mostly with um, heterosexual couples, um, more married than not, but definitely people that are, are not yet married. Well, we have some podcasts um, with a colleague of mine, Dr. David Fawcett, where we'll be talking about uh, gay sex addiction in the gay world and sex and drug addiction in the gay world. So um, we will be doing some of that near in the near future. So let's focus on straight couples then. I'm curious when a couple walks in your office, you know, they've never seen you before. They understand you are the expert. Um, they walk in your office and there they are. And she is looking like, and he is looking like, and I'm going to take a guess here. He looks miserable, like, oh my God, I can't believe I did this. I'm such a horrible person. And I just want her to forgive me and everything to be better. And so he's looking, I'm making this up, all kinds of shameful and embarrassed and and just wanting it all to be better. And she more likely is furious, crying, makeup running, uh, you know, stomping her feet, turning red. So the crazy one in the room might look more like the partner. Okay, tell me about that because I know they feel crazy. When I was hired at your institute at SRI many years ago as an intern, I was um, interviewed to work with the partners. And the clinical director at the time said to me, nobody on staff wanted to work with the partners because they felt that they were neurotic and they were hysterical and they were borderline. And in many ways, they felt like they were crazy. And it's because of that presentation that you just described, which, as we know now in the field, really is conceptualized as partner trauma. You know, they have been betrayed by the person that they look to the most for safety and security. And suddenly their belief, I mean, I talk a lot in my practice about existential trauma, you know, you have these beliefs about something that feels so real to you. And then, you know, this, this event, this trauma happens, and there's a huge contradiction. And suddenly you don't know what's up and what's down anymore. And nothing makes sense. And you don't know who to trust or who to believe. And that's severely traumatic for people. And so you see incredibly complex, you know, PTSD symptoms and, and women who do look as though they're falling apart, they look like they're furious. And to the average person who might be a fly on the wall watching this, they might feel really bad for the addict and think that the woman has lost her mind. And that's just not that's just not the case. Well, I think I've seen a few addicts uh, want to play into that. I think I've seen a few addicts say in the room, and boy, can, would this be a mistake for a therapist? See how angry my wife is? See how hysterical she is? See how much weight she's gained in the last six months? See how, you know, why wouldn't a guy go out and do this stuff if you lived with someone like this? And if a therapist wasn't savvy enough to understand that the presentation of the partner has to do with the incredible painful situation they've been living with, it would be easy to say, well, you seem kind of contrite, like you want to get better. And it seems like your wife, all she wants to do is yell at you. So let's get her out of the room. And I want to work with a nice person. I totally agree. And and Rob, that is what it, one of the things that concerns me so much about um, clients who don't know a lot about sex addiction therapy, just ending up in the hands of therapists who are not 
are not savvy and don't don't get that dynamic that you just described. It seems like what you're saying is that, you know, uh, and actually, I'm going to actually say from my own point of view, I remember a colleague of mine, Stephanie Karn, saying once, you know, it's hard to work with partners because who wants a really angry person in your office? You know, and and it's true in life, even therapists, you know, folks out there who are listening, we are people. <laughs> And, you know, we do have reactions. And so when someone is yelling and screaming and, you know, basically wanting to throw things in our office, it's kind of even, you know, as therapists, we are compassionate, we have empathy, we want to help. But there's a part of us that goes, get this crazy, angry person out of my office. (laughs) And unfortunately, I think, Marnie, what you're saying is that the field, our field, the addiction field in general, has pathologized spouses, has really assigned them something's wrong with you, Ness because you're so hurt, you're so angry, you're so hysterical, as opposed to saying, well, what would anyone feel who's been betrayed for 11 years and thought their whole life was X and then they find out it is Y? And and, and not to mention the fact that every time they have brought up something and said, are you doing this, honey? Their spouses said, absolutely not, when they probably were. In other words, their own intuition is denied. And maybe you could talk about that. Well, I think that that's actually a much bigger piece than the even the sexual acting out behavior. What I think that we've come to know in the field is that not that a partner wants their husband or their you know their partner to cheat or be with other women that part is a big betrayal but the the part that's even worse and more hurtful and that creates that huge lack of trust is the as I said before that chronic pattern of secrets and lies and manipulation that comes with protecting at any cost their secret for all of those years. And um, there's a lot of that gaslighting, like you just said, that crazy making behavior. So, you know, the partner might actually have intuition, which, which we see a lot. And way before the official discovery, they might approach their husband and ask, you know, I, I'm really confused. Are you seeing someone? You seem to be working late or whatever it is. And with so much defensiveness, you know, they're met with a lot of, of anger. Like, how could you even ask me that? I'm working so hard. I'm the breadwinner of our family. Maybe if you're so, you know, obsessed with affairs, you must be having an affair. And so when someone's been denied and, and made to feel like they were crazy and they've even apologized for you know, asking those questions, and then later they find out that that was um, that those were more lies that is that's the harder part for partners to forgive and move past well really what you're talking about is I mean I, I have a, a you know I've written a bunch of books about all of this and one of my typical statements about um, partners and about betrayal is that the betrayal is really not about the sex that's makes you really mad but the deeper betrayal is about the trust that it, it's the lies it's the it's the thought, the idea. I thought I knew you. I thought who I, I, I thought I knew our path. This is the existential stuff you're talking about, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought I knew where we're going. I thought we were together I, uh, on this road of life, and then all of a sudden I turn around and you're not there, or you're going in a completely different direction. And you kept telling me that you were right with me, right. and I could tell that you weren't with me. But you and I kept saying, "Honey, you're home late. You're distance. You're not coming in time for dinner. You're not showing up for the weekend because you're going on a business trip too often." You know, I, I kept saying to you, "Hey, I see signs that something's wrong," and you kept saying to me, "Back off. Give me a break. Everything's fine. I'm working hard. We have kids now, and don't be so suspicious." Yep. And. I think what you're saying is all of that leads a partner to feel a little crazy. Yeah, absolutely crazy. And then so angry once they discover that that that's what had been going on. And that, so that's some of the rage you're talking about is because you may they realize on some level, like I was right all along. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, 
going back to something you said a minute ago, I was thinking about, you know, I do this, I do this couples workshop every couple of months. And part of the, um, part of the workshop is I show quotes that have been collected over the years from partners and they're so universal. So they're the kind of quotes that when they're read during the workshop, every partner in the room is nodding their head emphatically like, yes, yes, this is exactly right. One of them is something like, um, discovering the addiction was like coming home to my house burned down. Like everything's gone. You know, everything that I knew was gone and it'll never be, never be the same again. And so, you know, it's this idea that, that this person that they loved and trusted has truly just blown everything up. And those universal themes are really seen, I think, I mean, at least in my practice and at my center, um, we see it so much. And, you know, a big, I think a big um, barrier to couples recovery and relational healing is often that, and we're getting onto a different topic here. So tell me if you, if you want me to stop. But um, I was just thinking about how, you know, that shame that we talked about earlier that we see in the addict, especially earlier in, in recovery, gets so fueled when a partner is identifying and talking about and keeping the the light on the betrayal and how much they've been hurt. And the addict has such a hard time holding that and being able to stay in that place of empathy or even get to a place of empathy, which is truly what the partner is needing to move towards a place of healing. And so there's a lot of stuckness, like you said. I was thinking that most addicts, you know, I'm a sex addict. I know how I would want that to go, which is I want you to be calm as quickly as possible. I want you to be over this as quickly as possible. I want you to be okay with me. In fact, I'd actually, as an addict, like things to just go back to the way they were, which is you don't know anything and I am in control because I think one of the dynamics here, which is really important, and we'll get into more concrete stuff in a minute, I think is that, you know, when you are a sex addict and you are living in a lie and your partner doesn't know about that lie, you're in control. And what you're in control of is the, is the truth. You get to decide what truth my spouse hears, what truth they don't hear, and, and what I make up about the truth to keep them quiet. All of a sudden, I think one of the harder things for the addict to realize is that when they've been really discovered and everything's on the table, the spouse is now in control. Um, uh, she, th- there's no hiding. There's no making stuff up. And even if you try, she doesn't believe you. How do you, you know, this is a, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm wondering, well, I want to say something for sex addicts on, on behalf of, of, of this side of the room, which is, um, you know, I don't think, I think it's really important for you and I to agree that, and I know we do, that the addict is responsible for their behavior just because you had trauma, just because you had bad things happen to you. And just because you ended up with a coping mechanism that involved betrayal and infidelity, it doesn't excuse the hurt, the pain, the loss, and the lies, you were an adult, you did do those things, and you did break the heart of the person you live with. Sometimes it's all too easy, I think, for an addict to want to say, oh, well, it was just my addiction. I'm not really responsible for this, as if addiction were some kind of excuse. And and I want to say, Marnie, too, the, the media kind of buys into that. They're like, oh, they're not going to treatment because they really regret what they did. They just want people to feel bad about them. How do you deal with that piece of it? There are, and we do see men present in therapy who are not sex addicts and they have acted out and maybe they even present very similarly to a sex addict. But the reality is they are using sex addiction as an excuse for bad behavior which is something you asked about earlier, you know, the the perception of, well, is this even real? And how do we know that it's a real problem? And people aren't just, you know, using it as an excuse. 
And I did want to comment on the fact that, again, specialized treatment is so important and seeing a therapist who's really knowledgeable in this area is important because we are able to discern whether someone is an addict or if somebody you know, has some problematic sexual behavior or entitlement or whatever it might be. There's a million different things it could be that's causing that behavior, but making sure that we're not treating them for addiction and that we're not, you know, telling their partner and having their partner buy into this idea that their husband is suffering from sex addiction because the treatment is different. It's interesting you bring that up because I've noticed in the last few years that there are two excuses for uh, that uh, people can use for bad behavior, uh, cheating and lying. And, and sexually acting out. One of them I've noticed among younger generation millennials is this word polyamory. Um, I've heard a lot of young men say to women, well, I'm polyamorous. And what they mean by that is I'm committed to a relationship with you, but I want to sleep with whoever else I want to. And that's not polyamory. <laughs> polyamory actually involves emotional, deep emotional connection with more than one person. Right. And, and it's not sex addiction also because it's involving at least it's truth and you know consent. Right. Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. So, and we have the same thing as you said with sex addiction, where someone might think, well, if I just tell my spouse I'm a sex addict, maybe they'll feel sorry for me instead of being angry at me. Well, no, that's actually, we know that's not going to work. Right. <laughs> um, they're actually going to be more upset because now they not only think you cheated, but you have a serious problem. Um, but I have a, you've brought up a really good question and I'm not expecting you to have the perfect answer. I'll ask lots of people this question. But if you were having a couple walk into your office where there had been some cheating uh, on a fair and a few sex workers or, you know, a little bit of this and that. And someone says, you know, I think this is sex addiction. How do you know whether it is someone who maybe has some problems with maturity in relationships, showing up and being responsible, respecting their partner, someone who might be more narcissistic and thinks, well, if I cheat, it'll be no big deal. That's very different than a sex addict. How do you, how do you determine the difference? Is it easy or to be honest with you, I think it is relatively easy. Maybe, maybe once in a while you have you have someone who might throw you for a loop, and you're a little con- confused about whether or not you're looking at a sex addict. My experience, and I don't think it's because I'm so fabulous or great. I just I think we have some good assessment tools, and you know, a lot of specialized training. You know, we know what addiction is. We know the difference between someone who's compulsive but able to stop if there's negative consequences, versus the person who can't stop and they're about to lose everything that's important to them. Mm-hmm. So I would really never do an assessment with an addict or with a person who's who's trying to figure out what's going on with them um, with their partner in the room. Um, so, you know, I would I would always do that separately. And I would use the, you know, the assessment tools that we have and then ask all those questions about, well, have you tried to stop? Have you said I'm going to stop? And what happens when you do? And do you continue despite negative consequences? And is it progressive? And, you know, I'd look at tolerance and withdrawal and, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty much it. I mean, it becomes clear, I think, pretty quickly. And yeah, I think this is a very difficult field and it's very challenging, but I will honestly say that I, I think that this is one of the easier parts of it is actually being able to assess whether somebody really is an addict or not. 
And you're trained. I mean, you're trained to do that. You have a CSAT, a certification in sex addiction treatment. There are about 3,000 CSATs around the country. And we are trained to both look at what I would call more casual infidelity versus sex addiction, be able to suss it out and understand it because that's our job. That's what we do. What would be a couple of things that you would recommend to, let's say, a married woman who just found out that her husband has been engaged in not just a little fooling around or she knew something was going off here and there, but she's found a massive amount of porn on the computer and hookups on the computer, or she found, you know, a bunch of bills and she realized they're all about sex workers or clubs, or what would you say to the woman who's discovered that there's been a massive amount of lying and infidelity? Well, let me say one thing about these women. I just, actually, I want to say something. They have the hardest time in the world turning to someone and talking about this. I think this is the one of the most shameful and embarrassing things for a woman to talk about is that her main person is cheating on her because you know, the culture, whether we like it or not, tells women, well, you know, men don't cheat if you keep them happy. And, you know, the Bible refers to that too. And so there's, uh, you know, eons of history that say to a woman, you know, if your husband's fooling around, it probably has something to do with you. We know that that is not true. So what do you say to a woman who's just found out all of this and doesn't know what to do? Would you say, go talk to him, go talk to a therapist, go read a book? I mean, what would someone do in those first moments of, oh my God, I think this has happened to me. So, and you're asking specifically about a, a, a woman who has not confronted yet their husband? Well, let's say maybe she confronted a few times, she got rebuffed, she got told it was no big deal, you know, she got gaslighted. Right. Um, or, you know, maybe she found about a couple of things years ago and they looked at it as cheating and they went through it and they moved on and she thought it would never happen again. And now she finds out there's an awful lot more that she just can't ignore. What then? So I think safety and stability is the first thing that I always look at. You know, I look at I look at sex addiction and relational healing um, from a triage perspective. And so the first thing I'd probably say is see a doctor. You know, get tested if there's any health concerns. Usually after the initial after the initial discovery, we don't really know the extent of the behavior, so we won't really know whether or not we were at risk for disease. So I feel that getting tested can also um, can often alleviate the fear after the initial discovery and before any kind of a formal disclosure takes place. So you're you're sending a spouse to a physician to get STD testing. I can't imagine anything be making this feel more real yeah. <laughs> than yeah. sitting in that doctor's office and having to face whether it's a family physician or even if you go to an anonymous clinic, you are physically have to sit there and say, I have been so massively betrayed by the person who says they love me that I have to now sit here and get tested to see if they've given me a disease. Yes. And it's mortifying. It's mortifying for them. I, I bet you would tell her to go with someone if she had someone to support her. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the culture of support is one of the most important things. And and honestly, as as crazy as this sounds, my telling her to see a doctor can actually add to the trauma. Because like you just said, <laughs> I'm putting in her head that maybe she's she's been at risk and she's been exposed. What if she has a disease? So our job as a therapist in this area is, it's definitely not easy. It's never pleasant to tell someone to see a doctor. And I never tell them that the likelihood is that they have a disease. You know, never would I do that. And um, I just talk about the fact that we, when we are lacking information, we have to do whatever we can to find some safety at an, un, you know, kind of in an unsafe or dangerous situation. So that's one of the first things I would do. I would also, I would definitely suggest therapy. 
I think what I've learned and what I've seen with all of my clients and certainly my colleagues are in agreement is that the support and also psychoeducation about betrayal trauma, about addiction, all of that is, is crucial in the early stages. I would say get into either a group with other women or find an online community of support. Often in the beginning, like you said, it's so hard for women to tell people. That's just, And then they feel alone and isolated, which could really um, exacerbate what they're already experiencing, all this pain. So to try to help them find a community of support, I think is crucial. And then two other things that I think would be probably the, the most important that I do would be... Um, you know, in those early stages, as we talked about before, the initial focus is often on the addict, him getting into treatment. You know, I've heard the, uh, many partners say, I need him off the streets of LA as soon as possible. So there's, you know, trying to find maybe an inpatient program or an intensive outpatient program. And so the initial focus is on the addict. So when a partner comes to me, I really try to move the focus to them and to their own self-care practices because they really are in a traumatized state and to continue to keep the focus on the addict keeps them in that state. It doesn't promote healing and recovery. So while I am, of course, giving some education, I'm also really focusing on this on the, on the partner herself. So I, I just have a, a word up from a lot of partners that I've worked with who will say, you know, uh, I appreciate that, you know, so I'm going to play a partner now, if that's okay. And you can tell me what you would say if I was a partner. I'm going to say to you, you know, it, you seem like a very nice therapist, but, um, you know, uh, after what just happened to me and what I've just experienced, and uh, I think I'm going to take everything I own and leave. I'm going to call a lawyer. I'm going to kick him out. I'm going to eliminate him from my life. I'm done. I'm finished. You know, uh, in other words, when all the angry feelings rush up to the surface and that person right at the start wants to take an action, what they want is to be out of pain. Sometimes the actions they reach for, however, may not be be the ones they're going to end up choosing over time. Well, I definitely validate the wanting to do all of that. I think, I mean, honestly, I think it makes sense. And I would probably want to do the same thing if I were in their shoes. Um, but I do talk about the importance of just not making any big decisions when you're in the middle of any kind of crisis. Okay. But I, I want to be an angry spouse. Okay. <laughs> I want to be an angry spouse one more time. And I want to say this. So why do you telling me that I have to get help, that I have to see a therapist, that I have any kind of problem when he is the one who did this to me? I would say, and again, I understand why. Isn't he the, isn't he the one? Shouldn't he get the help? I'm sorry, I'm sounding, now we'll do a partners to interrupt you. Shouldn't he get the help? <laughs> yes, he should. I'm not the one. He who, should. Well, but he's not even willing to go. So why are you telling me that I need to go? I don't understand. He's the one with the problem. Why do I need the help? I guess I would use a metaphor. I'd say, you know what? Because if God forbid you were attacked or assaulted or raped, you know, that wasn't your fault. This was the fault of some awful person who did a horrible, horrible, atrocious act, but then you live with the consequences. So unfortunately, that person may never get help, may never get caught, but you are going to be walking around in fear and trauma unless you get help and you, you know, for that. And is that fair? No, that's not fair. That's, it's awful and it's very unfair, Right. but that is the way that it works. That's right. So you're really, that's a really good way. So you're saying to this spouse, you know, Hey, I'm sorry you were in a car accident. I know you trusted the driver, but they may, you know, they screwed up. But you still have to get back surgery. You still have to see a chiropractor. You still have to, because your health has been affected by what happened to you with this person. And you can't just say, well, they had the car accident. They have to have their car fixed. Their bones are broken. I'll be fine because you're not fine. You were in it with them, right? 
Exactly. Exactly. And, and again, tons of validating because it makes sense. I mean, how angry would you be if you're living your life and you're a good person and you're being honest and you're in integrity and, and you're, you know, a good spouse and, you know, all of a sudden this thing happens and your life is completely shattered and, you know, you don't want to have to start going to therapy and meetings and groups and, you know, dealing with pain and trauma symptoms and you can't sleep and, and, you know, a lot of people are having real physical symptoms, weight loss and shaking and all of that. And it's terrible. But unfortunately, we live in a world where we're impacted often by outside or external circumstances. And then we have to, you know, we suffer the consequences and it's up to us to get the help we need so we can go on to live, you know, to live healthy and vital lives. Hey, everybody. I've been talking to my really good friend and colleague, Marnie Breaker, who is a therapist and a CSAT here in Southern California. She is CEO, founder, and clinical director of the Center for Relational Healing in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, Marnie, it's a pleasure. And uh, thank you, folks. Um, Welcome. And thank you for coming to Sex and Love Addiction 101. I aim to be able to provide a consistent resource of information and feedback and honest Uh, truth about what this issue is and what it's not and how you can get help. Take good care and we will talk to you soon. Bye for now. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.